We are returning to our study in Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're preaching through this on Sunday morning, and we are in Mark chapter 3, and a message I call, When Jesus Got Angry at Church. When Jesus Got Angry at Church, Mark chapter 3 and verse 4, you'll see where this came from. He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. We remind ourselves this morning that uh, the Gospel of Mark was written during a moment of growing international chaos. And uh, as the world was descending deeper and deeper into the darkness and madness, Mark gave them the truth about Jesus Christ. Because they needed to know who Jesus is and what He was doing. And so today, as we find ourselves in a world uh, growing deeper and deeper and darker and darker into chaotic situations, we too need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what He's doing for us. Aren't you glad today that you serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords? Uh, and we need to remind ourselves of that. Uh, that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied and uh, things are moving on schedule. We need to remember who Jesus is and what He means to us. Today we're going to be looking at another time when Jesus went to synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, though I have referred to this for our consideration today as going to church, and that's simply a time of worship, we understand the difference. Jesus was going to synagogue on the Sabbath. This almost always turned into a time of confrontation. And it was no different on this occasion. Uh, And so we'll pick up the narrative then in verse 1. He entered the synagogue again. We don't know which synagogue it was. Uh, Jesus had been traveling around the areas, around the Sea of Galilee and visiting there. And so he was in one of those. And at this particular synagogue, Mark tells us, there was a man who had a withered hand. Something had happened. Luke tells us it was his right hand, so we know that much. Uh, And something had happened. Whether he had had a stroke and he had lost the use of his right side completely, but the Bible didn't say that, just his hand, which would seem to indicate to us that it was some kind of an injury. Something had happened uh, that had caused them then to be unable to use that hand. And as it always does when you can't use it, it it just uh, emaciates, draws up, and uh, became completely unusable. Since Luke mentions then it was his right hand, we would be right, I think, in concluding that he was uh, completely disabled by this. He was probably right-handed. Now, if you folks are as right-handed or as left-handed, if as the case may be, as I am, uh, then I, you can identify with that. Uh, I can't paint very well right-handed. You don't even want me thinking about painting left-handed. Uh, uh, I, I can't. I can barely use a hammer right-handed. You don't want me trying to use one left-handed. It's not a pretty picture. And so here's a man who's lost the use of his dominant hand, and that meant he was disabled in a time when there was no disability whatsoever 
so that not only had he uh, been injured and had all the effects of that injury to deal with, uh, but he's probably also lost most, if not all, of his livelihood. Uh, he's there in the synagogue. Uh, this was not something that was unknown to them. Uh, this probably was his synagogue. We might think that all the synagogues in Israel were very large, but uh, that's not the case. Uh, if you have a chance to go to the Holy Land at some time, you'll visit some of the synagogues that they've excavated, and most of them would fit quite nicely inside of our auditorium. They're quite a bit smaller than this. Jewish law required them to have 10 people in order to have a synagogue service. And so it was not uncommon for some of the people who were not that popular, but yet they still wanted to be a teacher and a leader of a synagogue. It was not uncommon then for them to go out on the Sabbath day and actually pay people to come in so they would have 10 people there. Uh, I'm thankful that I don't have to pay people to come to church. <laughs> I tell you, uh, I don't know what to do. Say, I'm not going to say anything else about that today. I'm just, uh, just thankful uh, that we don't have to do that. But they did. They did. It was not uncommon. I want you to realize then that uh, a synagogue of 70, 80, 100 people uh, would be about average for their time. And so a man with a withered hand who was a regular person there, a regular attender at this synagogue, it would have been well known. He, he was there. He was there. He was there and it was expected. Not only was this man there, but Jesus, Jesus was also there. Verse 2 tells us then they watched him closely. Now this could have been the kind of watching that goes on with excitement and enthusiasm. I mean, here's the man with the withered hand. Here's Jesus. They could have been somebody bumping somebody. Hey, this is going to be a good day. We got a man with a withered hand here. We've got Jesus here. He's healing people everywhere. This, we're going to have church today. They could have been excited, thrilled. Who knows? Man, this is going to be good. That wasn't the kind of watching that was going on. Uh, they were watching to find something to criticize. Uh, they were hoping that Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath so they could accuse him of blasphemy. And that was all they were looking at. Maybe you know that feeling all too well this morning. Maybe you work in a situation where you're under constant scrutiny. Where a boss or maybe a co-worker is watching you all the time. Trying to find something that they can accuse you of for doing wrong. Uh, you know what, if you have or you've ever had that, maybe you, you run a business and you've had customers who just came in and it seemed like they were just determined to find something wrong. Maybe you teach a class and you're dealing with students or parents who just come in with the assumption that something is wrong and they never see anything good that you do. But they're always bringing up something bad that you do. That's a terrible situation. It's awful if you have to live with that from a spouse. Some of you have it at home or maybe children who have it from parents or even parents who have it from children, who never see anything good that they do. Nothing ever pleases them. Constantly looking for something to complain about or to accuse them of. Never seeing anything that was good. The fact is that Jesus knew that these people were watching. He knew, though, that this man was there who needed help. 
In all honesty, we have to say this morning that Jesus could have let this situation just move by and pass by. The injury that this man had 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 been going on long enough that his hand is already withered up, so it's not life-threatening. It's not like he's bleeding. Jesus didn't have to intervene right then and there. He could have healed him on Sunday. He could have healed him on Monday. He could have waited until the synagogue service was over and the Pharisees weren't around, and he could have gone to him privately. Instead, Jesus deliberately escalates the situation. He calls the man out and he says to him, you come forward. And how many of you know today that if Jesus Christ is calling you and telling you to come forward, that's what you need to do. All right, you may not have a withered hand. You might need to be saved. And if Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is calling you, the proper response is to say, yes, Lord. Maybe you need to come for baptism. Proper response is, yes, Lord. Jesus still calls out to people and tells them to come. And he called this one. And he did. And then he would immediately then pose that question. We'll see in just a moment. But we just need to see that Jesus was bringing this situation to the forefront. The Pharisees cared nothing about this man or his injury. They obviously didn't care anything about Jesus either. Though Jesus was doing things that no man could do or had ever done before. In a time when medicine was unknown. When the healing of people was just, it just wasn't happening anywhere. But Jesus was healing people all over the place. Not only was he healing people, but they were, he was also dealing with demons and I mean, this was a time when demons were inhabiting people and it was just an infestation of it everywhere and doing horrible things and awful things and taking ruthless control of them. And Jesus was casting them out and Jesus was healing people. But none of that meant anything to the Pharisees. They didn't care. They didn't care about the people who were hurting. They didn't care about the people who were healed. They didn't care about the man who was doing the healing. They were simply looking for something so they could accuse him of blasphemy. That's all they cared about. Might do us all good from time to time to remember that the only perfect man who ever lived faced a crowd doing everything they could to try to find something wrong. Now, you and I would quickly respond to this kind of scrutiny by saying, hey, I'm not perfect. (laughs) Amen. I'm not perfect. Jesus didn't have to say that. Jesus was perfect. Jesus never committed a single sin in his life. He never did anything wrong. He never made a mistake. He never had to say, oops, and he was a carpenter. I mean, goodness, never. And the first crowd missed that too. I mean, obviously none of y'all have done a a lot of carpentering. Or maybe y'all are just better at it than I am. I don't know. It just, there was so many things that could have potentially come along in his life. But Jesus never had to do that. Never had to say, I'm sorry. Never had to say, I was wrong. Never I had to say I, I messed up. No, Jesus was never in that arena. In John chapter 8, he stood before the same crowd and said to them, Which among you can convict me of sin? We wouldn't issue that charge. Jesus did. 
But I also want us to know this morning that Jesus did not dodge the situation, though He could have. Just put it off. After all, you know how them people are. You don't want to get them stirred up. The Pharisees are watching. The Pharisees are watching. I want to tell you something this morning, crowd. The Pharisees are always watching. They never go away. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I could heal this guy, but you know, they'll, if it does, it, then they're going to... The only way this crowd would ever be appeased is if Jesus would have submitted to them. And even that would not have done it because if He would have submitted on this one thing, then there would have been something else. If He would have passed by on this one, it would have been something else. They were never going to be okay with what He did. They were never going to accept Him. They were never going to change their mind about Him. There was no way that He could appease this crowd. And so he raised then a very spiritual issue in verse 4 when he said to them after he called that man forward, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Look at how Jesus framed the discussion. Good or evil, save life or kill it. This was a truth, you see, that could not be denied. It's no wonder they kept silent. They didn't want either horn of that dilemma. They didn't want either side. They were not going to answer. In another gospel account, Jesus brung up the story of a a sheep that had fallen in a pit. And he asked them, and and Jesus is the one who brought up this animal, a sheep. Which of you, if you had a sheep that fell in a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull him out and rescue him? And, of course, the answer to that was obviously, (laughs) yes, of course we would. Why? Because sheep are important. Sheep have value. And yet they were arguing about what he was doing to help another human being in a time of suffering. They'd help a sheep, but not a human. It's a good time for us this morning to remind ourselves that false religious systems throughout all of history have been well known for advancing the cause of animal life while degrading the position of humanity. It's always been that way. Primitive religions have always animated about everything. In fact, we call it animism. Where they see a spirit in animals, they they all have their spirit. And trees all have their spirits. And rocks all have their spirits. and, And we can't hurt the animals. And in fact, they would end up actually even worshiping the animals. And get this, they would worship their animals by killing people. Uh, We might point a long finger at the Hindus for their sacred cows. Taking care of their cows and letting people starve. I mean, we, we, we see that. That's just one of many examples. History is full of them. But we don't have any problems like that here in America. After all, we're a civilized people, right? I pointed this out to you before, but I'll, I'll keep doing it because it's real easy to do. And y'all will listen. Uh, It is still against the law in the United States of America to mess with or in any way molest or interfere with or do anything to an eagle's nest or an eagle's eggs. It's a federal crime. 
I know this because I checked it out again on Google uh, this week before I preached it again. And just to make sure they hadn't changed the law, maybe loosened up on it a little bit. In fact, in some ways, they've actually increased the restrictions because according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, if you want to photograph, even photograph an eagle's nest, you are to stay 330 feet. You want to talk about social distance? How about this one? 330 feet from an eagle's nest to get a picture because you might disturb them. And what they're doing is important. Steal an eagle's egg and try to sell it in the United States of America and see what happens. And yet, once again, with the change of administration that happened this year, fetal tissue from abortions are being sold in America. And the scourge of abortion continues in this country. We protect eagles' nests and eagles' eggs. But people... You see, wherever false religion flourishes, wherever it does, animal life tends to be advanced and protected. Human life tends to be degraded. I'm not the one who brought this up in the text. Jesus did. Here's a man with a withered arm. His life is being destroyed, livelihood being destroyed by his situation. Who knows what kind of pain he was having to live with. They didn't even have Advil back then. That's nothing. Who knows what kind of pain he was having to live with. And here are these people. Oh, you can't do anything for him. Now you can pull your sheep out of the pit because that's valuable. Folks, we're going to have to understand, and I, I want to talk for just a moment to our young people here today, and I'm glad so many of you are here for the second service. We had a good crowd in the first service as well. But you need to understand that the, the religious leaders and Jesus both were appealing to an audience, and they were doing things to persuade an audience. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees, what they were doing was trying to convince the people that Jesus was a bad guy. Jesus was a blasphemer. Jesus was not doing what was right because He was violating the Sabbath. Jesus, on the other hand, was also trying to convince that same crowd. What was His message? That He's the Son of David. That's the Messiah. That He is the Son of God. And Jesus was doing things to prove everything that he said. And so he stands before them with this very spiritual issue, this very significant question, is it good or, or is it evil? Are you going to save or are you going to kill? So he puts his works then up against their works. Good or evil, save or kill. We don't have to wait very long to figure out what the Pharisees decided to do. It's in verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The Herodians were the supporters of the Herods. Now the Herods were not uh, ethnically Jewish people. They were Edomites, that is, they were descendants of Esau. They lived in the area known as Idumea, which is going to be mentioned later in the text. Uh, the Jews hated them. 
And yet the people who aligned with the Herodians uh, were not ethnically Jewish. They were not religiously Jewish. They were the most liberal crowd in Israel at the time. So here's the Pharisees, the most conservative group of people, and yet they're partnering up with the most liberal group of people in Israel because both of them wanted Jesus gone. So what to do? What did Jesus do? He responded by doing what was obviously good. And he allowed the others then to go about doing what was obviously evil. Mark is careful to point out that this happened immediately. It was still the Sabbath day, folks. Are you with me? It was still the Sabbath day. The same day that they were hammering Jesus because he was going to heal the man with the withered hand, they went straight out on the Sabbath. And started up the plot to kill him. See what Jesus did. Do you do good or do evil on the Sabbath? Well, they were doing evil. Do you save life or kill? They had no problems trying to kill Jesus on the Sabbath. But Jesus put it out there. Young people, you're going to have to be able to exercise that same kind of discernment because not everybody in Israel would, would see through this. Some of them would, would follow along with, with what they were being taught, but, but some of them were going to see it. They were going to be able to see who was doing good and who was doing evil. And for us, it's just as simple as who's going to save life or who's going to take life. I thank God and am very proud to be able to stand on the side of a people who believe in saving life, both spiritually and physically, who believe that every human life is created in the image of God and every one of them is precious from the oldest down to the least of us and the most helpless, the unborn. We're all made in the image of God. We're all precious to God. We're on the side then of saving life. Who's on the side of killing? Young people, you're going to have to look at that and make that decision for yourself. I can't make it for you. I wish I could. If I could, I would. I'll preach it with all of my heart to you. But it's right here in the text and Jesus is the one who brought it to us. Let me be quick to point out, there's nothing wrong with saving a sheep. There's nothing wrong with protecting eagles or whales. Uh, I'm fond of eagles and whales, I really am. I could do without a few raccoons, I'll have to admit. Uh, they get on my nerves some. Uh, but I'm, I'm really fond of eagles and whales. But eagles are birds. Whales are mammals, animals. But people are made in the image of God. People give glory to God and to our Creator. And so Jesus put before this crowd and reaches across all these many centuries to put before us this simple spiritual test. Who is doing good? And who is doing evil? Is it lawful to save lives or to kill? And young people, you need to look. You need to look and see who is doing good and who is doing evil. Look who is saving lives and who's on the side of taking them. The setting, the scrutiny, the spiritual issue. 
Now, notice quickly then what I'm going to call the Sabbath-friendly healing. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, there was nothing wrong with stretching out your hand. Now, if he had told him to reach in his pocket, you know, they might have had something to say about it. Uh, other times, Jesus would tell that man, remember when he said, take up your bed and walk. He did that knowing fully well what he was doing. But there was nothing in this command that would violate the Sabbath. What did he ask him to do? Stretch forth your hand. They did this all the time. Uh, we do it too. Nothing wrong with stretching forth your hand. Nothing they could find objectionable. What else did Jesus do? Nothing. He told him to stretch forth his hand. It was an amazing scene. Here he is with that hand all withered and drawn up and broken up and messed up, his arm all emaciated, and there he is that had seen this all his life. Have you seen somebody with an injury like this that had lost the use of their arm, and it's all drawn up, and they can't use it? I've seen people like this. I knew a polio victim one time whose arm was this way. Uh, I've seen it. You've seen it. So here he is. And what did Jesus tell him to do? Stretch forth your hand. The one thing he couldn't do. And yet when Jesus told him to do, suddenly he did it. And there it was. And this hand, his right hand, was just as whole as the other one. It was an obvious, immediate, incredible, undeniable miracle of power that was a tribute to the power of the Word of God through Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible tells us, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But here we are, dead in our trespasses and sin. How can we do that? Well, we can't do that. But there's power in the command. So that when the power comes, when the command comes, the power to obey that command comes with it. We're told to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that command then is infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, we find that we can do what we could never do on our own. That's why the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Yeah. So then we see the story as it plays out. Here's the time when Jesus came to the synagogue. There was a man with a withered hand. They were watching him, scrutinizing him, ready to criticize. Jesus brings up that incredibly spiritual issue. Is it right to do good or evil, uh, to, to save life or to kill? The answer was obvious. They didn't want to answer, so they didn't. And then Jesus went on and healed the man. But before he did, the Bible tells us this interesting detail, verse 5. He looked around at them with anger. He looked at them with anger. It's just a look. But the anger was very real. You know, this is the only time in the gospel account when it ever says that Jesus was angry. And it was obvious. He looked at them with anger. You know what that look looks like? Nancy sometimes tell me, tells me, don't look at me in that tone of voice. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Jesus looked at them with anger. But why was he angry? Well, we don't have to wonder. He was angry with them because of the hardness of their hearts. He had declared himself to be the son of David. He, had, he was showing himself to be the son of God. And they did not believe him. And because of that, he was 
angry. It must have been an uncomfortable moment when Jesus stared them down. I wonder how long they looked at him before they broke eye contact. (laughs) I don't know. I wouldn't look at Jesus angry very long, I don't think. I know one thing. There'd come a time when they wouldn't meet his eyes at all. They wouldn't look at him at all. They wouldn't see it. Because they'd have their their face on the floor before him. But not only was Jesus angry... But the Bible says he was also grieved. And so it is with God. He was angry because of their sin and because of their rebellion and their resistance, their refusal. He was angry because of their unbelief. When they had every reason to believe. But he was also grieved. That is, his heart broke. Because he knew what it was going to do to them. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 1, the Bible says, He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. He performed this miracle in such an amazing way so that it highlighted the power of the Word and the power of the Gospel, but they turned away from it. All it did was make them angrier. And when they turned away from the Gospel, they turned away from the only power on earth that could save them. So we see then that Jesus was angry because of their hardened hearts. He was also grieved. He wasn't just angry, but he was grieved. But then comes the big question, that is, what happens next? What happens next? Let's read on verse quickly, very quickly. Verse 7, but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea, that's Herod's country, from beyond Jordan, that's a very uh, Gentile uh, uh, Arab area, Tyre and Sidon, completely two completely Gentile cities. There was a great multitude. There were so many people that Jesus would speak to his disciples and said, now y'all pull a boat up handy just in, in case I need it. <laughs> now there's something kind of ironic about that. How many of you know that Jesus really didn't need a boat? (laughs) You know, this is a guy who walks on water, okay? So he could have done without the boat. When he does something like this, he does it then for our benefit, for the disciples' benefit. There would be times when he would step into a boat and maybe pull back and, and use that, uh, that way that, that audio uh, travels better on the water. You know how sound travels on the water. Jesus knew it too, after all. He's the one who made that rule, okay? And so there would be times when he'd step out in a boat and go out and address the crowd, but He just wanted us to to notice. This was a crowd of people. Here's the Pharisees who were rejecting Him. The religious leaders who hated Him and who were on that very day conspiring to kill Him. Meanwhile, there's this huge crowd of people out there. And Jesus went out there and started teaching them and healing them. And they just thronged Him and pressed up to Him. Because all they wanted was to get close to Jesus. What a contrast. You see, Jesus didn't get mad and go off and pout for three months. Didn't happen. 
Didn't get any amens on that, so we can just say, ouch, and move on. It's a great time for us to remember what the Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and sin not. Jesus didn't sin when he got mad. When he got angry, he wasn't sinning. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Jesus was angry over their hardness of their hearts, over their rebellion, their resistance, over their complete unconcern for this man, for being so insensitive to the needs of people, so blinded to the truth of who he obviously was. And he was angry at them in their self-righteousness and in their pride. But he was also grieved to the core because he knew what was coming. So Jesus went right on doing good. He didn't stop. He wasn't intimidated by the fact that the Pharisees were there. Oh, you better watch out. No, he wasn't intimidated a bit. He went right on doing good, and he did a whole lot of it. We wind up then today by me reminding you once again, the Pharisees are always watching. In our world today, the Pharisees don't wear white robes, and they most likely don't even claim to be religious. They never go to church. They have their own god, goddesses. And it's not like they've invented something new because uh, we don't invent new gods. We just recycle the old ones. That's, that's the history of humanity. You, you know, the Greeks worshipped a god they called Eros. It's the word our word erotic comes from. They, they also worshipped a god, the goddess they called Aphrodite, the goddess of sensual passion. And if, if the Pharisees of our day have a religion, their religion is sexuality. That, that's what it is. They, they worship it above all things. They give it privilege of all things. There's nothing they won't sacrifice to it. It's become their God. Uh, they have beliefs about it. And they're willing to die for those beliefs or kill for them. Uh, we're seeing it more and more. And woe, 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 woe unto anybody who dares to deny their orthodoxy. We dare. We dare. Not just because we're putting something else on or making something up or because we have our own truth. Because we live as hundreds of generations before us have lived. We live under the authority of the Word of God. We believe that Bible is God's Word to us. And that God has made us and that He then has the authority to tell us what is right and what is wrong. We dare then to stand before this culture every bit as rigid as the Pharisees were in their day with the same message that Jesus gave. Is it right to do good or evil? Is it right to save life or to kill? That's still our choice. About a decade then after Mark wrote his gospel, the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Rome, or the churches at Rome, and he would give them a simple instruction. This is it. He would say, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. 
You see, he wasn't just telling us this stuff. Uh, he, he was talking about what Jesus had not only taught but modeled. He stood before the Pharisees. They were ready to pounce on him because he was going to violate their orthodoxy. But Jesus did what he knew was good and right. <laughs> he didn't give one minute of his time trying to appease the Pharisees. He knew it wouldn't work. He instead gave his time to doing good. He let them play out what they were going to play out, and we know how that worked out. The Pharisees were going to take him to a hill outside the ancient city of Jerusalem. It was named Golgotha, and he would be nailed to a cross before the night would be over, he would be buried in a borrowed tomb. And they thought they were through <laughs> with Jesus. But they weren't. And we still today serve that same Jesus Christ. And we still then have that responsibility to overcome evil with good. Go back one more time this morning and ask you. Is the same Jesus that called out to that crippled man so long ago saying, Come forward. Is he calling out to you? That's the power of the gospel that you feel in your heart if you're lost. It's not the power of human persuasion. It is the power of the mighty Holy Spirit of God taking the truth of the gospel and calling to you. It's something you could never do on your own. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, it tells you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you turn away from that, there is nothing else to turn to. Have you been saved? Have you followed Him in baptism? Whatever He's calling you to do today, I pray that you'll do it. Let's stand together, please.